Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Stuart Woods, who died on July 22, 2022, at the age of 84, wrote over 100 novels in a career spanning 40 years. Best known for his first novel, Chiefs, published in 1981, most of his books featured a former NYPD detective-turned-attorney named Stone Barrington. There were other series as well, featuring CIA operative Holly Barker, Santa Fe defense lawyer Ed Eagle, Senator and then-President William Henry Lee, and a 1930s detective named Rick Barron. His characters appear in the same universe and sometimes appear in each other's novels. But on May 10, 1993, when Richard A. Lupoff and I spoke to him in the KPFA studios, Stuart Woods may have been in middle age, but his career was just kicking into high gear. He was on tour for a standalone novel, L.A. Times, and the only Stone Barrington novel to be published out of over 60 to come, was New York dead two years earlier. In fact, in the discussion, there's no mention of any series because there was no way of knowing then at the time that there would be any series. Had you always wanted to be a writer? Since childhood. and I, There's a reason for that, I think. My mother taught me to read a year before I went to school. And by the time I was in the first grade, I had read all the books, and they bumped me up into the second grade. And from that time on, I was a voracious reader. And I think I made my first stab at a novel when I was about nine. I only got a couple of pages into it, which showed me how hard it was. But that thought never left my mind after that. And after college, I, I was fortunate enough to get a job in advertising where I was forced to write every day, whether I felt like it or not, and where everything I wrote was placed under very tight scrutiny. And after a while, uh, you acquire some technique as well as some desire. What kind of advertising did you write? Almost every kind. Television, magazines, radio, uh, catalogs, brochures, everything that came along. I wrote at one time or another. Was there any anything specific we might remember? Oh, I won a, what is that award called? A Clio once for a Procter & Gamble commercial for Spick & Span, which is notable only for the fact that no one speaks in the commercial. I thought that it was a great leap forward for nobody to speak in a Procter & Gamble commercial. What, what was the commercial about? It was, it was um, uh, an elderly janitor teaching a young janitor how to mop a floor. And it was only music, and they had ne never done anything as radical as this. And I thought that by taking the verbal message of Spick & Span off the air, I had done not, not only advertising but my country a great service. <laughs> what made you leave advertising? I, I had wanted to write. I'd had this idea for a novel for some time, which was based on some events in my family in my hometown. And finally, I was in London working for an agency there, and I had a big fight, and I quit, and I had to decide what to do next. And I think that the moment was precipitated by the fact that my lease was up in the apartment, and I 
if I was going to make a commitment to stay in London and work in advertising, I would have had to conduct a large search for a new apartment, come up with a lot of money that I didn't have. And it seemed like a real good time to take a hike and try and write this novel that had been rattling around in my head since I was a child. And it only took me eight years, and I finally got it finished, and it was published and did okay. That was Chiefs. That was Chiefs. Which became a miniseries with Charlton Heston. That's correct. Uh, six hours on CBS in 1983 with an excellent cast, including people like Danny Glover and John Goodman, who have now become quite large stars. You also got involved in sailing? Oh, yes. When I went to Ireland to write the novel, uh, I found out how difficult it was to write fiction. And about this time, someone took me sailing on a small boat up the west coast of Ireland. And this seemed a really good opportunity not to write the novel. And I became obsessed with sailing and later did a single-handed race across the Atlantic. And uh, the fastnet of 79, in which several people were killed, and another transatlantic crossing as a skipper of a larger boat. And uh, all that gave me a lot of things to do instead of writing the novel for several years. And finally, I had to uh, actually sit down and finish it. What were you living on at the time? Um, my grandfather had died and left me not a lot of money, just enough money to get in debt for a boat. And uh, I had the boat built, went ahead and did the race, and then I went back and began running the family business, which was a little department store, and uh, getting ready to sell it. And I took a small salary from that while I was finishing the novel, and eventually I sold it. Uh, there wasn't a great deal to be left from it, but uh, that that store and my grandfather's small legacy got me started. Even earlier than this, you were in the Air Force. Yes, I was uh, in the Air National Guard, in fact, in a New York State unit when the Berlin Wall was built in 1961. And I was yanked back into the service on 30 days' notice and shipped off to... Germany, where I flew a truck up and down the Autobahn for uh, about <laughs> nine months. Even though you were in the Air Force, Air Force you were literally a truck driver yes, on the Autobahn. I was, I was an enlisted man. I, was a, I drove the commander for a while, and I drove lots of trucks and other different kinds of vehicles at very high speeds up and down the Autobahn. I was actually once arrested for speeding by the head of transportation for the Air Force in, in Europe, a full colonel uh, who my whose doors I blew off uh, one day. He and his family were on vacation, I think, and he caught up with me, stopped me, and nailed me on the spot. <laughs> to, to what result? Well, I, he threatened to call my commanding officer, um, whose name was Magelhays, and I think that he never really got the spelling straight. I would have been reduced even further in rank. Uh, I think I was only one notch above the lowest possible <laughs> rank anyway. Whenever we meet authors who, uh, several decades after military service, have, have become prominent in other fields, the question is, is obvious whether this experience formed you in any way, influenced your character or the content of your works. Well, it certainly taught me that I was ill-suited to be in the military. Um, I had a sort of constant war running with, with the management of my unit. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a comical situation, and there's probably a good comic novel in it. Here we have all these civilians who go to drill one, one, one weekend a month, yanked back into the service, a lot of middle-aged men. And you have to realize that most of the officers and, and, and uh, non-coms who were doing this were doing it for the extra money. I mean, uh, th this is the kind of guy that you had doing this, that they weren't doing very well in civilian life, and they, they made a few hundred bucks a year or a few thousand extra. So we got there. We have a situation where we have these terribly mediocre officers and non-commissioned officers. We have 17 enlisted men who are lawyers, New York City lawyers, who are suddenly 
uh, airmen first class and, uh, you know, buck sergeants and that sort of thing. And that's very comical. Uh, the whole thing was just turned upside down. We had um, a unit which was, well, I'll give you an, uh, a story which illustrates the incompetence which, with which we dealt with this situation. We were a tactical control unit, which I believe, from my position as a truck driver, I think it had something to do with looking at radar screens and, and directing fighters to various targets. And periodically there was supposed to be a surprise inspection. And I happened to be uh, driving the commanding officer one day when uh, a brigadier general showed up to conduct this inspection. And I drove them over to the large circus-type tent where all this activity was going on inside, and I waited there for about two hours. And they came out, and I was to drive them to the officer's club for lunch. And they got into the car, and nothing was said. All the way back to the officer's club, not a word was spoken between these two men. And finally, just as I pulled up at the officer's club, I heard the brigadier general say, Colonel, I'll tell you what, we'll have another surprise inspection a week from Thursday at 10 a.m. And uh, I think that that illustrates the level of readiness at which we were working. This was not in normal peacetime. This was during the crisis. Let's see, Kennedy had just become president. The East German authorities were putting up the Berlin Wall. That's correct. This was an extremely tense moment for the world. Much more tense than most people in the United States realized at the time. Some people I were in school with, two women were married to young army officers who had actually been sent down the Audubon to Berlin uh, with truckloads of troops just to prove that we could still use the Audubon. And they were being uh, buzzed constantly by large Russian helicopters bristling with machine guns, and they said at that point if one shot had been fired by either side, at that point the whole thing would have erupted into World War III. We were given uh, a kind of intelligence briefing by a man who stood up and explained that we were in in Mannheim in western West Germany, who explained that um, if war did start, we could expect to last about 24 hours before our, our positions were overrun in the West by the Russian tanks. The Russians had over 100 divisions. We had 18, something like that. But uh, there would certainly have been a nuclear conflagration if that had gone off. How many such incidents do you think there were uh, of which the public knew relatively little at the time and even less today? It wasn't that the public knew relatively little. God knows it was all over the newspapers. It was just that, and in comparison, the Cuban Missile Crisis seemed a much tenser situation. But the Berlin Wall situation was very nearly as tense uh, as, as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Your first novel, Chiefs, became a, I believe you said, six-hour TV series on CBS. And you did have some involvement with that. They didn't just pay you the money and say, go away, kid. Well, I had no formal in- involvement, but the producer was kind enough to send me uh, uh, every generation of the script and ask for my comments and suggestions. And they even took some of my suggestions, one or two casting suggestions. And I think I helped them make the script better by uh, suggesting that they drop this or cut that. And uh, I actually played a small part. I went up to Chester, South Carolina, where they were filming, and I was a movie star for a day. I had a trailer, and I had a two-minute scene with Billy D. Williams in which he forgot all his lines, and I remembered mine. And then, then when I started on film, he looked wonderful, and I looked like an idiot. So it was clear who the professional actor was. Grassroots was um, somewhat later. That was only last year. Uh, Corbin Berenson and Mel Harris starred in that. Had the same executive producer and the same um, director, fortunately. That went very well. John Glover had a fine part in that, too. They did something with the ending that I wasn't very happy with, but I thought it was a nicely made four-hour miniseries. 
Now, when this occurs, when they make what, what you regard as a seriously damaging change in your story, number one, what can you do about this? Number two, what do you do about it? Well, there's a clause in my book contracts which says that I'm the writer and nothing can be changed without my permission. There's a clause in the screenplay contracts which says I'm only the writer and I have to do as I'm told. So if um, they do something with your book that you don't like, if you have an opportunity to personally persuade them that they're wrong, which is very difficult to do, of course you can try that, but very often the writer never has any contact at all with any person working on the uh, screenplay or the film itself. If he's lucky, he gets invited to the premiere. In my case, uh, the people were kinder and I was more fortunate. A recent book of yours, New York Dead, concerns itself with a uh, cop who becomes a private eye in New York City. It also features some real people like Elaine of the mo of the restaurant Elaine's. How did that come about? Well, I'm a, a, a devotee of Elaine and I've been going there for a large number of years. Uh, Elaine's is um, a kind of club where the public are invited to come and pay to watch the members eat, and the members like that. And um, uh, it seemed a good place to start a, uh, a book about New York. It's Elaine's 30th anniversary this year, and uh, there are generations now of writers who are grateful to her for the introductions that they've made and so forth, and that restaurant. Uh, it's a wonderful place. Now, the book itself concerns the seeming murder of a character who reminded me kind of of Diane Sawyer. Well, I suppose she's an amalgam of a number of um, television anchor ladies, except that she has uh, a certain facets to her character and personality which are not as attractive as those of Diane Sawyer or Connie Chung or any of the other great people uh, who work in this industry. But she's certainly as famous as any of them, and, uh, and she's aggressive and ambitious. And when she apparently comes to a bad end, the whole world is electrified by that happening. There are a number of unusual coincidences in, in the book, particularly one in which uh, one of the witnesses to her apparent murder turns out to be uh, a mass killer that other people are looking for. What do you feel about using coincidence in novels? Because you get away with it fine there, but I'm, I'm just curious about, in a broader sense, how far do you think you can go with coincidence? Well, uh, writers are sometimes criticized for using coincidence to change plots, but in fact, I have a theory about coincidence that it's the most important factor uh, in all our lives. If you go trace your own life back to its very conception, you'll find that a great many very important things that happened to you that changed your life are based entirely on co coincidence. I'll give you a, a, a relation of a true coincidence that happened some years ago in London that I read about in the newspaper. An American writer named George Pfeiffer, living in London, published a novel. It got fairly good reviews, and it died a natural death. And a couple of years later, it was sold to the movies. And Anthony Hopkins, the actor, was hired to play the lead part. Now, about this time, Pfeiffer's personal copy of his book was stolen from his car, which was strange, he thought, because there were some binoculars and a camera and some other things that weren't stolen. But it was a heavily annotated personal co copy, and he wanted it back. So he ran ads in the London papers offering a award. Nothing happened. He never got it back. When Hopkins got the script, he wanted to read the novel on which it was based. And by this time, it was out of print. He began going to used bookstores in the West End, one after another, looking for a copy of the novel. Couldn't find one. Spent a whole afternoon exhausting himself looking for this book. At the end of the day, he went 
down to the subway station to go home, disappointed at his lack of uh, success, sat down on the bench to wait for a train, and lying next to him was a book. And he picked it up, and it was the book he'd been looking all, for all day. And not only that, it was George Pfeiffer's personal copy that had been stolen some months before. Now, if I put that into a novel, critics would say, ridiculous, never happened. In fact, uh, coincident, so important to all of us that I think that it can hardly be overused. I have no apologies, whatever, for having interesting coincidences in books. Well, in that book in particular, there are quite a few that work work out that way, including uh, a strange scene involving uh, videotaping a uh, a love scene. Did you talk to any PIs about that? No. I think that probably every American alive has in his head enough uh, police technique and private eye technique to write a novel about it, a plausible novel about that subject. We've all been subjected to so many films and television shows about it that I think it's almost second nature. I think that if somebody makes a procedural error on television now, half the country would catch it immediately. To move on to your newest novel, L.A. Times. L.A. Times, as I was reading it, reminded me vaguely of The Player, but you began this long before The Player came out. I think so, yeah, um, and I never really saw any similarity uh, among the two, between the two. Uh, in fact, uh, I think the character in The Player was only accidentally criminal, where my character is uh, intentionally criminal throughout. Is there any basis for the character of Michael or Vinny, whatever his name is, in real life? I'm told by people who've read it that, that he exists in uh, more than one Hollywood personality, but I, I didn't try to base him on anyone. In fact, I don't, I don't know anyone like that. But as one of the characters says to Vinny or Michael, as he later becomes known, uh, you have the single most important quality for a successful producer in Hollywood, your complete sociopath. And that's what Michael Vincent is. He's also a sociopath with taste. Uh, he wants to make good movies, even though his way of getting there is, uh, shall we say, a little bit uh, criminal. <laughs> That's perfectly true. Uh, as Vinny, he'd been going to the movies at least twice a day since he was a small boy. He's absolutely obsessed with the movies. Everything he does, uh, the way he dresses, the way he speaks uh, is based on some movie character or on some actor. And um, by the time he gets to Hollywood, uh, he is uh, extremely well prepared to do his work. And yet, for all that he is a 1993 Hollywood character, I found that, that as I read the book, I harked back to a much earlier archetype, the Al Capone, his way of rising, and particularly the confrontation between Capone and his mentor in Chicago, Big Jim Colosimo. Well, I suppose if Al Capone had gone to Hollywood in the 1930s and had become uh, a well-known producer, he might have operated in pretty much the same way that Michael Vincent does. Michael is obsessed with the movies. He's obsessed with getting his ideas into the movies. He believes he can do it as well as anybody, and he may be right. And he doesn't much care how it gets done as long as the uh, film gets made, and he's willing to do whatever it takes, absolutely anything, to get the films made. There's a certain verisimilitude in the milieu that you've described what are your own contacts with Hollywood? I have a lot of friends who are either in television or the movie business, and I've had two books made into television miniseries, and I was involved to some extent with both of those. So I suppose that what little personal contact I've had with Hollywood gets into the book in, in, uh, in some ways, as you say, I think, to, to achieve verisimilitude. It's an author's 
uh, or a novelist's obligation to be plausible, not accurate. Plausible, not accurate. What's the difference? Well, I have to create in the reader's mind a, a picture of what's happening in Hollywood that he finds believable, that he finds plausible. Whether or not those actual events are taking place in Hollywood doesn't matter since I'm writing a novel and not a nonfiction book. If I were writing about a real uh, person, I would be obligated to check every fact several times and all my quotes and, and do the things that people like David McLinnick had to do. But I'm not a nonfiction writer. I'm a novelist, and I make it up as I go along. One of the stock questions a writer gets asked is, where do you get your ideas? Let me do a variation. Where did the concept of a mafioso taking over Hollywood come from? I'm not sure that I can remember the actual germ of an idea on this. Uh, I try to write books that interest me, the kind of book I would want to read myself. Both the mafia and Hollywood are subjects that I have found uh, to be fascinating at one time or another. The idea of combining the two in a plausible way uh, seemed very attractive and inviting. And so I set out on that path and sort of let Michael Vincent get there and do what he had to do to get his movies made. Michael Vincent's rise in Hollywood, and, and of course, you've, you've written the book, and Walensky and I have read it, so if some of our references sound a little bit oblique to our listeners, they'll just have to read the book too. That, that wouldn't sure. break your heart. <laughs> but his rise seems to be so meteoric and in a peculiar way so easy and natural. He just falls his way to the top. Well, I think that um, it often looks easy and natural for people who have worked very, very hard to get where they are. Where they are. As I say, Michael has been obsessed with the movie since, uh, since he was a small child. And when the book opens, he's actually attending a production class at NYU Film School. So he's there confirming the judgments he's made about films and learning how to make other judgments that will uh, turn, turn out new films. And I think that the reason he rises so meteorically is, first of all, he gets a film under his belt while he's still at film school, and that is his entree to Hollywood. Anybody who can walk into Hollywood, California with uh, several cans of film under his arm that constitute a marketable, profitable um, feature film is going to find himself on his way very quickly. And the Hollywood assumption is if you can do it once, you can do it again. And uh, he manages to do that, of course, and he keeps right on going. He produces a film called Pacific Afternoon. Yes. Uh, Afternoons, was it? Afternoons. Afternoons, based on a mythical novel of the 1920s. Right. Uh, did you have an archetype in mind when you wrote that? Not really, but I suppose it's a sort of film that Merchant and Ivory are making today about England. This novel was a sort of um, May-September love story between a young woman and a, and a doctor who had pursued her from afar and who had been afraid to reveal his intentions because of the differences in their ages. And I wanted to show that Michael did have some a sense of style and taste and judgment that went beyond making uh, action thrillers and so forth. Uh, he is genuinely into film. He is genuinely good at what he does. And he turns out to make a very nice film. So he's not really a totally unredeemed bad guy. Michael is not only unredeemed, he's unredeemable, I think. Uh, he simply has one or two attractive facets to his personality. One is his ability to uh, recognize a good script, uh, to cast it, and to persuade the people involved to make the kind of film that he wants to make. And um, that's an attractive character in anybody. It's just the methods that he uses that are so um, uh, horrible and heinous. 
The operative word for a number of Hollywood producers is scum. Um, <laughs> uh, when I was reading this book, I, I found it fascinating to look at scum from the inside out. Had you encountered anyone who, at least on the surface, could have been Michael, and did you want to figure out what they were doing inside? Well, first of all, I should say that I have some friends in California who make films who are absolutely sterling people, and I love them dearly, and they're not at all like Michael Vincent. On the other hand, I've had one or two brushes with characters who are extremely well-known in the business and have contacted me about doing this or that, uh, who were absolutely dazzling to watch in their footwork. The projects never came to anything. They walk in with lavish promises and so forth, and they suck you dry, and then they walk out. But I wasn't trying to get back at anybody uh, about this, but uh, I had a, um, an experience with a well-known producer who called my agent with an idea for a film, and he wanted a novel written about it first. And um, my agent recommended me uh, out of his long list of authors. And uh, eventually I met with some of this man's people in California. I ended up paying for the breakfast at the Bel Air Hotel. <laughs> and um, for weeks the telephone rang, twice a week with the president of this company saying, you're terrific, you're a pro, this is going to get made, we can't wait to get to work on this. But they never actually made an offer. Finally, someone, a lawyer from their office, called and said, how much of Woods's book are we going to get? And uh, my reply to that was, absolutely nothing. I'll write this book, I'll base it on your film, and then you can film it, and the film is yours and the book is mine. And, and they were obsessed with getting some part of this book. They wanted me to pay... $50,000 to pay two writers who had done an earlier version of the script. And my position was, you hired the writers, you paid them. Not out of my pocket, but out of yours. And eventually the whole thing just fizzled and came to nothing. But they must have called back about four times after I had said, definitely, flatly, no. Apparently they're intrigued with the idea of someone who would say no to them. But I'm quite happily writing my novels and making a decent living, and um, probably as much as I could make by being successful in Hollywood and with a great deal more peace of mind. Did that screenplay ever surface? Not yet, but you never know. Why does Vincent Calabresi or Michael Vincent want to be a producer? The glamour positions in Hollywood, we are always told, are the star, of course, the actual on-screen image, or the director. Director has this incredible glow to it. But why a producer? Isn't that just more of a businessman behind the scenes? Michael himself answers that question in the book. When asked why he wants to produce instead of the direct, he says, producers hire and fire directors. Michael wants the absolute final control, and he maintains that in every project he works on. He becomes a director. Oh, he does, uh, eventually. But I think he needed a bit more confidence under his belt to do that. But uh, he, Michael won't hire anyone that he can't control. And he'll use various nefarious means to do it. In one case, he persuades an aging movie star who, as a young man, sang to uh, do a singing scene, a rather tender, sentimental scene in a book. And when the scene is not going very well, uh, he takes the man aside, whom he knows to be an alcoholic, and uh, gets him drunk. And the man does the scene beautifully. Michael has his scene and his movie. Never mind that the guy has to go back to Betty Ford for another 12 weeks. That's the sort of thing Michael does. That has a, a ring about it, uh, as if it's a story you might have heard in Hollywood, is it? 
I think it's certainly a story that could have happened in Hollywood. It's the kind of things that people in the film business have done to each other over the years, uh, the, the worst people uh, in the film business. I think that you have a, if you have a producer with an enormous stake in seeing this film be successful and that film turns on one scene, and in order to get that scene made, he has to do something bad to somebody, I don't think he'll hesitate very long rather than see his career go down the toilet. Surely people in Hollywood are reading L.A. Times. How are they responding to it? Well, uh, the response has been sort of flat and dull, which doesn't surprise me. I, it would be masochistic for Hollywood to want to make a film about Hollywood the, of the nature of this book. The Player, uh, for instance, was made by Robert Altman, who has been anathema to Hollywood for a very long time. And I suppose he saw it as a way of getting back, back at some of them. Now he's the toast of Hollywood because he's made a successful <laughs> film that shows them all to be in a very bad light. But I would be very surprised if this book became a feature film. It struck me as I read this book that it is extremely cinematic in nature. I don't mean just that the theme of it is, is movies, but that reading it was almost like watching a movie of this story. Was this your intention? That's never been consciously my intention, but that has been said to me about almost every book I've ever written. And there are a couple of reasons for it. One of them is, is that I grew up on the on the movies the way Michael Vincent did, although not to the same intensity. I, I didn't go twice a day. I went twice a week. The other is that I wrote television commercials for a while and have a tendency to think visually. But I think probably the way I write is that when I'm writing a scene, I see the scene happening as if it were a film, and then I write down what I see. And I think that helps to make it uh, cinematic. I've been told that my books are easy to adapt for the movies because they're written cinematically. But I think the movies have, have um, played a very important part. There's been a big influence on the way uh, contemporary writers work. For instance, the, when the fast cut came along in movies, you began to see that turning up in novels. My, my first editor, who was an uh, older man, was a bit disturbed in Chiefs when I cut quickly from one scene to another. And I said, just go to the movies. It happens all the time. The reader won't have any problem with that. And, and the reader didn't. Your editor wanted you to do something like, meanwhile, 400 miles away, George Finster was... I'm not sure what he wanted me to do. I think I, what I was doing, I think, was, um, let's say that I had two characters converging at one point in the story. I would cut back and forth to their progress uh, as they approached that point where something dramatic might happen very quickly, and I would separate the passages by a bit of space. But he, he didn't go to the movies much, didn't watch television much. He was a literary uh, man, and, and that troubled him at the time. But uh, I declined to change it, and I think it has probably helped the success of the novel. Well, cross-cutting has become kind of secondary mm -hmm. in most yes. novels. Yes. And that's a, that's a film technique rather than a literary technique. question then is whether all of our media are converging to produce some strange new hybrid. What I have in mind is you see things in novels now that look as if they came out of comic books and things in comic books that look as if they came out of movies or off bubblegum cards. I think that's true. I think every medium influences every other medium, especially mass media that, uh, that everyone is privy to. And I think that there are still many novels being written which stick strictly to a literary form that ignores other media. And uh, that's fine. Uh, I think there's a place for that. But it doesn't trouble me that these media influence each other. It, it troubles me that sometimes uh, they all seem to be headed a little downhill because they're being influenced by each other. But I think that's a, a product of, the, of mass marketing, mass viewing more than anything else.
You worked in advertising and you've written these books. What role do you think advertising plays in the book field in promoting books? Well, publishers will tell you that advertising does not sell books. They'll also tell you that reviews don't sell book books. Uh, however, uh, both of those things are wrong, I think. Publishing is a very old-fashioned business. It's run pretty much the way it was 50 years ago. Uh, when I first, my, my first novel was about to be published, I said to my editor that we should run some advertising, and his attitude was, if it starts to sell, we'll run a few ads, you know. And I said, well, in advertising, it's supposed to be the other way around. You, you create this advertising which creates a demand for the book and so forth. But, in fact, most publishing budgets are so small that there's not an opportunity to do that. And the best people who are working in advertising are working on airlines and uh, food accounts and so forth and not on book accounts, which are very small. So, as a result, you don't get very startling advertising for books. I think that if um, a great advertising writer and art director were working on a book ad that you might then see an ad created which would actually result in greatly increased sales of the book, but that rarely happens. I understand that you are planning on a, a solo round-the-world air trip next year. Well, I was. It was going to be my, my new wife and me, but uh, my publisher and I were unable to agree on who should handle the expense of this trip, and so it was canceled only a couple of weeks ago. I was all ready to go, the airplane's ready, uh, lots of new equipment bought, lots of money spent, but I'm afraid that it won't happen, and at least not this year. Stuart Woods, your most recent book is L.A. Times. What do you have coming up next? Uh, there'll be a book out in, uh, well, first of all, there's also the paperback of my last novel, which is coming out simultaneously. That's Santa Fe Rules. They're both in the stores now, and uh, Books Incorporated in San Francisco has some signed copies. Also, Barnes & Noble in uh, Oakley and in Berkeley also have them. In January, there'll be a new book out, which is already completed, called Dead Eyes, which is about the stalker phenomenon probably in conjunction with the paperback of L.A. Times. To date, IMDb lists just the two miniseries mentioned by Stuart Woods in the interview, Chiefs and Grassroots. A third novel, White Cargo, is said to be in pre-production as a film. Wikipedia lists four posthumous Stone Carrington novels, the first of which, Distant Thunder, has a publication date of October 2022. Both L.A. Times and New York Dead are still in print. You've been listening to an interview with Stuart Woods, the prolific author who died on July 22, 2022, at the age of 84. The interview was recorded May 10, 1993, in the KPFA studios while he was on tour for his novel, L.A. Times. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. This recording was digitized and edited August 2022 and has not been heard in nearly 30 years. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.